Right on time, people. It says we're live. It looks like we're live. Mic check. Is this thing on? All right. Tonight's going to be a good one. I'm not going to hold the mic the entire night. But tonight's going to be a good one. Uh, this week on, uh, I forgot what we called this, Sidebar. Sidebar with Vivon Barnes. We have Mike Cernovich. Now, I want everyone to appreciate, um, I've this mic has been a good mic to me. It's very nice. If I talk into it, it picks up my voice. It also picks up a lot of the ambient static. And people have been saying now that we're doing these weekly interviews, I've got to up my mic game. I got it. And I wanted to have this ready for tonight. But because I'm an idiot, uh, you get the mic. I got the stand. Uh, I said I was going to go get the cloud lifter, but the cloud lifter can't be delivered until two weeks. Then I was going to go to a store and whatever. So I, I couldn't get it set up for tonight. But soon, it's going to be perfect, beautiful um, audio. Uh, until then, uh, another issue is apparently the stream has not been showing up in feeds, as was, I think, the problem with last Sunday stream with Robert. I got off chat with YouTube. They're going to look into it. And who knows, maybe I'm actually going to uh, come out of this with a channel manager. It might be time that YouTube shines that light of channel manager on my channel to help me navigate uh, what YouTube has become. Okay, yeah, I got Boomer. Here we got, we got, where's the Boomer? And you fancy, I got Fancy Nancy. Okay, so tonight's sidebar with Robert is Mike Cernovich. Uh, Mike has been on the channel. If it's not three times, it's definitely twice. Uh, the first time, I remember we spent one full hour talking about his childhood upbringing up to the present before we got into the other issues. The second time we talked about his movie, Hoaxed. Hoax. It was Hoax or Hoaxed? I think it's Hoax. One is one is uh, Cernovich's movie. The other is <laughs> Brian Stelter's uh, <laughs> book on Trump. And I feel terrible. It's Hoaxed. Yeah, it was hoaxed. Anyhow, uh, the second time was on him directing, producing that movie. Uh, it's a great, great documentary if you haven't seen it. People think whenever you endorse a documentary, you have to agree with everything in it. It's just a great documentary. Agree or disagree with some of the stuff in it. It's going to show you stuff that you don't know. So that's it. Okay, standard, in standard intro uh, warnings. Super chats. If you're going to be miffed if I don't read them out loud, don't give them. I try to bring as many of them up as possible. I'm going to take as many questions as we can get from the from the uh, comment section. I know we have some from the locals community where you can follow Robert and I. VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com. Viva um, no legal advice, and there may be swearing tonight, but it won't be coming from me. So with that said, I see Robert. I see Mike. I'm going to give them the heads up so they know I'm bringing them in. Gentlemen, let's do this. One and two. How are we doing? Doing good, great. Good. Thank you. So now here's the question. Do we prefer this and I will go here? Do we prefer this to the other one? I am neutral. <laughs> I think we get we get a we get a broader uh, we got a broader sort of framing here. So um to start off the evening with a joke, the real Bambuga says, you didn't read my 476,820, whatever, super chat. Bambuga, thank you very much and welcome. All right, gentlemen. So where do we start tonight? Robert, I, I, where do we start? I think I know what I'd like to start with with Mike this time, but do you have something you want to start with? Well, I, you know, I think it'll be our first question for all of these will be, at least for, uh, for me, 
is what leads anyone to be a free thinker? In other words, why be independent and separate from the established narrative, be willing to question con uh, conventional narratives, be willing to contest of, uh, the authorities, be willing to challenge establishment logic, be willing to question anything that came before. So, uh, Mike, what do you think in your life history helped shape or enable you to be a free thinker when that's mostly a rare trait through human history? Yeah, I think, I don't know, is it natural? Is it nature or nurture, I guess, is always the question. And I think in my case, it was probably natural, probably a natural uh, instinct because I've had to modulate my behavior in a lot of way, a lot of ways to become sort of like more agreeable. I read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin when I was very young and I learned that you can be much more persuasive if you, to, to make a generational reference, to, you don't be brainy Smurf. Oh, I'm right. You know, I do that on Twitter when I want to make people angry, but it's a bad trait to have. And I probably had that trait when I was younger. I just want to be right. Also, a lot of it came from just seeing things. Probably a lot of it's from my dad. We, you know, we'd read bodybuilding magazines and something as dumb as that, but then your teachers would say, if you have 10 grams of protein, you're going to get kidney disease, right? The the level of just outright stupidity and outright fab fabrications, and I don't know that I want to call them lies, rather than just, they're so wrong about everything. Oh, anabolic steroids, they're going to kill you. Lyle Alzado died of, died of steroids, and then you find out, no, it was maybe brain cancer, but then there was maybe an HIV thing that wasn't disclosed in time. So just as a very, just as a young kid, other than religion, where it was very orthodox, and boy, did you get in trouble if you questioned that. We were a pretty much anything goes free thinking household. And that's an interesting thing because I'm wondering how much of this, if we go to the who are considered to be the free thinkers, the people challenging, you know, the narratives, etc., what they were like as children. And I do wonder. Like I didn't ask Dave Rubin this. I know Mike from our previous discussions. Your your childhood, Robert. I think I know from yours. But like, were we all sort of troublesome kids, uh, defiant kids growing up, getting in trouble as kids, and this is how it materializes in adulthood? Mike, your 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 childhood bullied, uh, coming from but very. I have a point before I forget. So yeah. I don't want to interrupt ever, but well, um, I bet you that if you check the report card, you would see a <laughs> correlation does not live up to potential, does not do homework, does not because actually today I was looking back at my life and everything that maybe I could have done better. And the number one, and maybe you guys can, can talk about this to yourself. The number one thing I, I would not do homework because I was pretty smart, could catch on, but then I would look back and that would actually hold me back because I wouldn't grind out. I didn't pick that up probably until law school to where I like got really bad grades. And I, it was the first time I ever like ran into a wall. And then I started doing the homework, the flashcards, the study guides, and I, I adopted just drillers are killers. Like I drilled everything to the point that you could give me a, a like a con law exam, law school exam right now, and I bet you that I could get an A minus, probably or B plus, A minus on it. So I, I bet you that all of us, if you looked at the report cards, would say, you know, maybe not behavioral issue per se, but definitely does not live up or does not work up to potential. Robert, well, the other thing there is like our generation, Gen Xers, you know, we might be labeled opposite uh, oppositional defiance disorder now, but luckily we were ahead of the curve before 
it became let's uh, put all the let's put them all on medications. Let's put these first graders, disproportionately boys, disproportionately people labeled troublesome on every kind of drug known to man, particularly experimental drugs. We were before that happened. We were before the safe space culture and the kidnapping scares that led to you had to have a play date before you could go outside. I think part of the Gen X generation has a generational difference than both boomers and millennials because of some of the things we did not experience growing up that allowed us to be more, I think there are more free thinkers amongst the Gen Xers than there are boomers or millennials just because of generational experience. And, and to, to your point, I, I just had a flashback as we were talking where you talked about behavioral problems. And I remember I was in fifth grade and, you know, you would have to draw things. And I drew a picture of an army tank with a USSR flag, an American flag. And then I had the USSR tank like winning the fight or whatever to be like edgy. And my teacher said, oh, nice picture. I hand, you know, and hung it on her desk. And that was the last time I ever did it because you know, back then it was a different class of teacher. They're like, oh, you think you're so edgy. Nobody, now they would send you to the, the principal for violence, first of all, for making a, a tank or a gun. And then it would be like anti, well, I guess the, the Soviet Union's in vogue now. But anyway, you would be in really, really big trouble nowadays. And back then they were just like, oh, isn't this cute? I'll hang it on my desk. And I was like, well, shit, that, you know, that doesn't really work. And it was really that generation where the boomers, we're indoctrinated in a very authoritarian. We have three people on the news and Walter Cronkite is giving us the real news and that's the way it is. And then you have the generation beneath us where anything you say or do can and will be used against you to the most horrific kind of way possible. And then you have Gen X who we, you know, we saw the boomers, a lot of the boomers, probably we, we saw a lot of our families lose jobs or friends lose jobs due to Reaganomics. And that's probably why Gen X people were more pro-Trump, I bet, if you had a real poll, like a, a truthful poll, would be more pro-tariff, pro-quote-unquote protectionism, because we watched the Reaganomics in action. We were the we were probably the first generation to watch parent, you know, parents lose their jobs. So that shook you from the dominant paradigm of, oh, it's a free market, and we actually live in a free market. And nowadays, of course, you have millennial rage, which is because there's no healthy outlet for anger. Now it's millennial rage, millennial fear, millennial panic. And then with Gen Z, it appears to be getting much worse. It's funny, actually, you mentioned it, Cerno. I, um, as a kid, I bounced around three different high schools. I got in trouble for things back then, which literally could even get me into trouble these days because they're apparently they're drudging up things that 17 year olds tweeted to get them in trouble at 27. And so much so that at one point there were two people in my growing up, one was a principal of the third school, high school I went to. And one was a teacher of the first high school I went to who even back then could have altered the course of my life. And I, and I searched them both up and, and thanked them for not having ruined my life back then. And one since pa passed away six months after, and it was, it's an interesting thing, but not living up to potential in high school at the very least. Uh, I, I was getting into trouble, but you know that, that might be for other reasons, youngest kid of five and looking for attention. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. The, the, what makes people more inquisitive and more, call it uh, rebellious and as adults are what gets them into trouble as kids. But it is true, Robert. The things that we did as kids and that I did as a kid would get people canceled and at the very least these days. And it was a good it was a good time to be alive, I guess. In retrospect, and we had good teachers. I, I think that's 
the the weird weird awakening that I had relatively recently, which was an unfortunate one, is I would say that I don't know every I would say that I liked every teacher that I ever had, or I liked something about every teacher that I ever had. In terms of if you were getting into trouble, they tried to handle it off the books at first. The flip side was your parents didn't complain when you got in trouble, you were actually in trouble, and there was no uh, parents calling your teacher kind of deal. If your parents got a call from the teacher, which would be rare, it, it was widely understood that probably you were the issue. There was no indoctrination. Looking back now, I can say, oh, that teacher was a lefty for sure, but you never would have guessed it. They're, they're just never, it was very much like grammar. This is, this is the way like to structure a sentence. This is the way to structure an essay. Politics never came up. There was no electioneering. And because of that, it gave people a lot of space to explore a lot of space to, to find boundaries and guardrails. So I loved, I loved my teachers and I did the same thing. It's funny you did that V because I did that when I first really started getting into self-development, one of the exercises was you had to write letters to people. So when I was in my, I don't know, late teens, early twenties, I wrote letters to people, including a high school teacher. And um, when you say that you didn't know the teachers were left, it's a good segue into one of the questions, which is a legit question. It was from Herv who asked, uh, Mike, are you, do you consider yourself alt-right? And I'm bringing up Little Panda, and I don't know if this is sarcasm or trolling, but I'll bring it up anyhow. Did you introduce your guests? I did. But Mike, and then there was a little alt-right bear on it. Uh, Herv asked, do you consider yourself alt-right? I guess the first thing is to define what alt-right is, and then uh, what do you think? Yeah, questions like that are weird because... It's almost like you're dodging the question by elaborating it. So the answer would be the the simple answer would just be no. The the latter answer would be that, according to the media, Dave Rubin's alt right, Ben Shapiro's alt right, Joe Rogan might be alt right. The more nuanced answer, which if we lived in an honest and ethical society, would be that that was a term that had a meaning, which was in 2015, do you support the National Review and the Party of War? and the party of big business. And you would say, no, there's an alternative. And then once that label took a certain amount of respect, respectability, maybe isn't a word, but it caught on and it was very wide. The media said, ha ha ha, bait and switch mofos. And then they said, here's what it actually means. It means this narrow thing. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm more popular than all the people you're mentioning. How about I get to define the labels? You can't say, oh, this loser of almost no relevance claims that he invented it, which he didn't. As a matter of fact, he actually didn't. But that's the way the thing works. So the in my own growing phase, you learn to just never accept a label. So people would say, are you right wing? No. Are you a centrist? No. What, what do you believe? Hey, man, I believe what I believe. And you can never accept a label because then you get shoehorned into that label. And that label will mean whatever you know, the corporate media, the propaganda press takes it on to me and they'll say, oh, here's here's this person and he's he's such and such. And you see that often. I mean, you see that to the degree now where even if you design, even if a third party who's a liberal designs a stage for you, as it happened to CPAC, <laughs> and then some blue anon weirdo says with their whiteboard, oh, that that's actually a ruin that, you know, I've never heard of. Now there's a whole entry in, in, in Wikipedia on CPAC, and CPAC will forever be associated with using Nazi iconography, even though they didn't design the stage. The stage designer said, hey, here's a stage. It looks cool. 
the stage designer is a Democrat and her business is actually going to take a blow to that. So it's a very long-winded way of saying, no, however, here's a rabbit hole that you go down anytime labels are applied. So I don't, I don't accept any labels now. I don't, I don't have any kind of labels that I apply to myself anymore. Not because I'm so cool, not to be a millennial. Yo, man, you can't define me. I'm way too cool. No, I'm just not going to let other people define me. And that means not using any kind of labels. Especially well, that's the revolution of the modern age is this big battle between there used to be gated libraries of controlled curated authors and modern technology exploded the number of authors uh, who get to define themselves and define their own ideas and define the rest. And probably you're sort of the self-made man of the social media era more so than almost anyone that I know of. I mean, you managed to go into the blogger space, the author space, the filmmaker space, the journalist space, Every method and means of influence that you could self-create and self-author, you manage to not only do, but do exceptionally well. And I think that drives the gatekeepers insane because they want to define who has access. They want to, and, and you were one of the first people that was subject to the shame and censor campaigns. And sometimes it's in reverse. They censor first, then they use the censorship to shame someone like they're now doing to the Bobby Kennedys. I mean, they were never going to limit it to the right. Now, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is getting to experience it in a live time while willing to voice free thinking ideas that questioned and uh, 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 be a, a voice for dissident people and individuals, even if it upset and offended your own audience and being willing to contest deep state people. And so part of that is I wanted to get into that extraordinary life experience in the modern world of pursuing each of those professional paths and succeeding in them. What led you to them? What inspired you to do so? And why do you think you had success at them? Well, the number one, I think the number one thing of success, if I were going back, is that I didn't do this as a kid or even in high school. I just started doing my homework. I just, I always tell people, put this in your brain. Drillers are killers. If you want to learn a wrestling takedown, you know what you do at wrestling practice? You do that move and only that move a hundred times. If you want to do well at a law school exam, you type in, because if anybody's in law school, they would know the IRAC method, issue rule, application, conclusion. The rule, I could type the rule for, under the Fourth Amendment, all searches and seizures must be reasonable. Reasonableness is defined by all the facts and circumstances set at the time. There's an objective standard that's applied to reasonableness. Boom. I, why? Because I typed that probably 100 times, not 100, probably 1,000 times, because I wanted to amjure that class. I wanted to book or that class. So everything is really... Not just that you got to do the homework, which uh, is kind of vague, or not that you have to work hard, which is always too vague for me, but you have to drill things specifically over and over and over and over and over again. No matter what the domain, you want to be a better public speaker, get in front of a mirror and talk. Well, I don't know what I want to talk about. What did I just talk? Just talk. Just talk. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'll look stupid. To who? Who's with you? Your own brain, right? And that's when you start getting into the only, the only um, thing that matters, which is the mindset and the conversations you have with yourself, put there by someone else, by the way, right? Because I'll tell people, people say, oh, I got to give a speech. I'm nervous. I say, okay, go stand in front of a mirror and give a speech. Well, I'll feel stupid. Why? I'll feel judged. Why? Who's there? You, all those voices, those aren't yours. There's nobody to judge you, you right? There's not all that judgment all that shame, all the feelings of inadequacy, oh, I don't want to feel stupid. There's there's no one else there, right? So you would go, I would say, one, drillers are killers. Two is get over 
the feeling of looking stupid to no one in the room. You are the only person in the room. There's no one to look stupid for, right? I want to sometimes just shake people. Who are you looking stupid in front of? There's no one in the room with you. And that's what holds so many people back because if you're not willing to look stupid in front of yourself, then you're not willing to take risks and embrace your fears by maybe looking stupid in front of other people, which you will. You will say things that are off base or maybe that don't reflect your true views. And then you'll have to, to go through that. So that's what drillers are killers get over the whole, I don't want to look stupid. And then largely it's the, you know, I learned this when we started doing ayahuasca and stuff is there's an expression like the only way out is through. And it's hard to appreciate that until you you've done enough in life where you realize if you're getting your butt kicked, there's no like into it. If you're in a bad place in life, like you lose your job, hey, dude, I'm sorry. That sucks. I've lost my job. Hey, I've had to talk people out and not turn off the power. Hey, man, I know what it's like to meet the utility person at the door. Hey, I know what it's like to have lost everything or to feel you. But it doesn't end. Like you're still there, right? So rather than wallow in the self-pity and wallow in the misery, you realize that the only way through a challenging situation, and this is speaking defensively, is you just have to go through it. And then the aspirational positive message of that is once you stop playing defense and you play offense and you realize, yeah, I don't want to learn this new skill. Yeah, I don't want to push myself. Yeah, I don't want to take this kind of chance. Yeah, I don't I don't know anything about this subject. But you got to go through it, right? Because either otherwise you're just going to be you're just going to be flat like that. So it's fundamentally the mindset principles went through. With, or rather went with me and everything that I've ever done, good or bad. And then, of course, we, you know, learned a few things along the way. I didn't know it was such clarity when I was younger, but I just knew, okay, like you're getting bullied, take a martial art. Okay, that's not really working. Well, practice your martial art. Really hard. Practice it, right? So what I would do, and this is mentioned in Gorilla Mindset, and Viva did the thing where he said Harilla Mindset. I always say it's Harambi, not Che. Right. So it's a gorilla, not the not the gorilla warfare, but it's a common um, misspelling. So what I would do when I was a kid that I mentioned as real mindset is I read that all the the tie boxes and kickboxes would take uh, a newspaper, a magazine, and they would roll them up really tight and then they would tape them. And then you could like hit your legs with it to protect you from leg kicks and like hit your body with it. So I'm this like little kid. It's almost like I'm a pentient priest or something like that. I'm a, I'm a kid outside my garage. like, And you realize, though, that the pain isn't really that bad. The pain of losing, the pain of being a failure, the pain of regret, that pain is far more acute than the pain of pushing yourself. So you learn, okay, like I can learn a specific skill. I have to go through the pain process. I got to go through the pain barrier. I got to go to the pain cave, whatever people call it. You can't escape the pain. And then as you get older, you re, you know, you develop maybe a little bit more wisdom and you realize that when I kid, when I was a kid, I did those specific things because other people were harassing me, man. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't bring this on myself. At least when people attack me now, I can think, well, I'm, you know, I kind of asked for it. I didn't as a kid, but then you realize that when you get older, the pain's going to come. You're going to lose friends. You might lose a child. Friends of yours might get cancer. You might get cancer. You might have a business that goes bust in one day because of a shutdown order. 
And you might have put your this happened to a gym over by a coffee shop I went to. A guy put his life savings into a gym, a CrossFit style gym, in February 2020. In March, he shut down. Now he's back living with his parents, right? The pain's coming anyway. So you might as well inflict as much pain as you can on yourself now because then when the pain comes, it feels much less. It's an interesting thing, actually. I, this was one of the questions I had asked you when we were when we talked the first time about this, the work that you had done in exposing, uh, or, you know, un- releasing the, the Epstein files. Uh, some of the work that you do, which will make you a lot of enemies, if only by virtue of the fact that you're either telling the truth or exposing the truth. And you say, I, I know it's one of my flaws in life is living under perpetual fear. And it's funny that the fear of the fear oftentimes is more um, is more distressful than the actual pain when it comes or the issue when it arises because you go from fearing it to dealing with it and those are two very different uh, mindsets but how do you how, on the one hand how do you get past it how do you deal with it and how do you recommend other people actually get over their you know not just the fear of talking to themselves but the fear of real life real life issues if, if losing their job for a tweet uh, expressing themselves politically, and getting in trouble, but all sorts of things. How do you tell people to get over that? What do they do? And what did you do incidentally? Right. So there's two answers that one is the answer that I reject, which is that fear is imaginary and doesn't really exist. There's even an expression where you put, you write on a whiteboard F E A R fear is something about stuff that ain't real. I forget the exact expression, but the idea is, Oh, you're just afraid of nothing. Two is the more rational approach which as you said, is that the fear of the thing is almost always greater than itself. Almost always. The fear of the thing is almost always greater than itself. Here, here's what people um, maybe, maybe miss by that. So I always tell young people, people who are 25, no kids, and they go, I'm afraid to start a business. And you know what I tell them? I say, brother, I don't want to be glib, but you're, you can start it. It might fail. You'll plead bankruptcy. I know a lot of people who played bankruptcy, not that big of a deal, bro. But when you're 25, I read about a guy who killed himself in Robin Hood because he thought that he owed 250,000 in margin calls and it turned out he didn't know it. I would have said, bro, you just file for bankruptcy. Who cares, man? But we're lawyers. So we've seen, you know, thousands of people go through it. And we know that bankruptcy is not really a big deal. So often you're just telling people you're afraid of all this stuff. That first of all, it's not even a big deal. What do you do? Secondly, you don't even know this going to happen to you because it, it couldn't. It could end up in a better way too. The, now, to counter that is, I tell people that you shouldn't tweet if you're a Trump supporter vocally because you probably will lose your job, and you're probably underweighting the damage. So, for example, that Mumford and Son guy—he just read a book. Imagine you're a founding member of Mumford and Sons who even, you know, my Gen X self had heard the songs Lion Man or whatever 10 years ago. They're very big deal. Your founding member, your own bandmates expel you from the group because you read a book and you thought this is a good book. From Andy No, who's not Mike Cernovich. He's not controversial at all, right? So I, so the, the, the very long answer to that is, one is your nine times out of 10, Whatever you're afraid of isn't remotely, remotely worth being afraid of. The one out of 10, be smart about. Yeah, if you have a good job, give your money on a super chat. Keep your job, do Viva super, super Chats. 
You'll have more impact anyway. We don't need a person with 12 followers tweeting something. Don't risk your career. You're not making a living doing this. Make make money, support people making, making a living doing this. But when it comes to fear, it's largely what are the big fears? Well, I'm afraid to ask that person out on a date, right? Okay. Then just ask the person on a date. Oh, said no. Okay, how do you feel? I don't know. Felt a little awkward. Whoop-de-doo. Whoop-de-doo, bro, right? Whoop-de-doo. That's even people like me too, Eric. It's like, no, you're just, you're, you're politely asking someone. You're not going to get me too, unless you're at work, in which case you should just be working anyway. And that goes to, if I were like incrementally, I, I believe in incrementally facing fears. And by that, I mean, just do something to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, the day of the International Women's Week. Do something every day that makes you afraid. Doesn't mean go rock climbing. Doesn't mean you're going to try to free solo El Capitano, right? Doesn't mean you're going to risk all of your money in a business venture. But every day we're afraid of something. Every day we're afraid to do something. And it's usually very little. And you face that fear every day. And then as you build that up, you naturally dilute your fear response. And then you become much less afraid of other experiences. Well, yeah, and I was going to ask. So, I mean, you, you got into mindset mentality. I always consider that like the first step to anything. Political revolution, cultural revolution, social revolution, economic revolution, self-revolution. It has to start with self-narration. And the and so your sort of foundation of access into the self-authorship world of all of these different means and modes was writing Guerrilla Mindset, which I gave to my son when he was in his teenagers because it just has good fundamental advice, just which people astoundingly forget. I mean, I give it I give I give that to my clients at times and give the advice from it to my clients because the elemental the foundations people forget about their self-narration and how powerful that is. There's a reason why Nelson Mandela repeatedly went back to the power of self-narration, because even though as long as he served in prison. Medgar Evers, the same way, said that most men die only a thousand deaths every day. I'm only going to die once. And that's how he conquered fear, realizing self-narration was the key. What led to your interest into mindset uh, as an idea, as a philosophy, and then to write guerrilla mindset? Sure. I grew up poor. So to quote 50 Cent, it was get rich or die trying. Not that I'm rich, but, you know, I can have a Cohiba Siglo 6 every now and then and a little bit of cold brew coffee too, meal every now and then. But the idea was I was just poor. There was – I had nice parents. There was just no way out for me. The only way out was up, right? And I had to learn that because I had a lot of the traits we talked about earlier. I did have some annoying quirks, disagreeableness, not really understanding how closed-minded people were, right? Like it used to be if you were an atheist, you were going to get in a lot of trouble. And ironically, I'm probably Christian or at least pro-Christian now. But, you know, so I was an early atheist, proved there's a God. And you, you realize, one, you're kind of annoying. There is an approach that's kind of annoying. But two, the most people are closed off. Most people, whatever they believed when they were 20, that's what they're going to believe when they're 60. There's no growth at all. And when you're saying things that counter, even just by living your life, even if you're just self-confident, people get mad, right? Because then that requires them to face maybe their own insecurities. So I had to just read, I read all the books, you know, I read How to Win Friends and Influence People, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, early, er, you know, early mindset work, you know, Think and Grow Rich, all those books that people 
mention and name drop. Like there's a reason everybody mentions how to win friends and influence people. There's a reason Warren Buffett, who's 89, said he went to a, the Car Carnegie School of Public Speaking, right? If Warren Buffett, Robert can tell you, and Viva knows because we're lawyers. Warren's not necessarily a good man. He's not the Uncle Warren narrative, which we can talk about in a minute. There's a narrative about Warren Buffett, but putting that aside, there's a reason that he said the most important class he ever took was a class on public speaking from Dale Carnegie, who did How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he used to have kind of a Trump University style self-education class, like an early learning annex kind of stuff. So there's a reason that like people don't just, we don't just all make this stuff up. Oh, I read how, how to friend, win friends and influence people and like change my life. Like, no, I, there's a reason I read that book. There's a reason a lot of people read the 48 laws of power, uh, 50 cents book, the 50th law, which is about fear and how he had a lot of fear. I think didn't get enough attention. It's a good book. So for me, I was just younger. My parents, God love them. You know, I didn't know how to have a budget. I didn't know what a credit score was. I didn't know what a credit rating was. I didn't know anything about money, about life, you, you name it. I had to read all the books. And then I reached a point where the books really weren't, the books weren't helping anymore. So I kind of reached, I think in my late 20s, 28, 29, I hit kind of a ceiling and I read all the books. And I thought, okay, I've just sort of hit a ceiling of my own potential and then that's when I started writing sort of my own material for myself. And like you say, narration that, that goes to, I went to, you know, to be fair, I went to Jerry Spence's trial lawyer college, regional seminar training. So you do a lot of psychodrama, a lot of empathy. So the reason, the reason that, how to say this, one way to become more persuasive, it starts with empathy. Right. So if you go to a Jerry Spence seminar, I don't know if he gives them anymore or what, or what they're teaching at that place. And I've heard that there's a lot of there's a lot of drama and the board's actually suing and there's elder abuse charges. So I don't know what's going on now, but you start one of the exercises you do is, you know, like Viva, Robert, you know, you would sit in a chair and then Robert would sit over here to your left. So or rather, you know, Viva, Robert, you'd be like that. And then you would just say, hey, just start talking. And you say, hey, you know, I'm Robert. I'm here. I'm at this seminar. I'm not sure what I'm doing. And you just let them talk for a couple minutes. And then you have to speak in the first person. It's called the first person opening statement, which is what it leads to as a specific skill. But then you would say, I feel kind of awkward that I'm here. And then your partner would say, no, that's not it. But you're, so you're trying to find his inner monologue. You're trying to find his psychological vulnerabilities. Fundamentally, you're trying to find out what he's afraid of. And then he'll say, yeah, that's true. And you'll say, yeah, I feel kind of awkward here. I'm not sure why I came here. My friends are kind of laughing at me. I didn't want to tell my wife where I was really going. I said that I was going to a CLE. And then he'll be like, yeah. And then so then you start vibing. Now you're in that person's mind or in that person's world and you're empathizing with them. And then now you're able to tell that person's story, right? in a way that's going to be much more compelling. So someone says people operate from emotions are easy to fool. You've not read David Hume. You've not read any of the great thinkers. Everyone operates from emotions all of the time. Oh, I'm so logical. I don't have emotions. Yes, you do. You have preferences. You have hormones. You have estrogen, testosterone, prolactin. You have a hundred different myelos going on. You have dopamine. You have serotonin. There's a feedback loop that dopamine hits when you do certain things. 
So that too is, is contrary to mindset thinking. A lot of people would think that mindset thinking is just strictly rationality, but there's emotional components, your own fears, your love, your hate, your loathing, the fears that other people have. That's all floating around all the time. So you try to discover that into other people because why? For some reason, it's easier to tell another person's story than to tell yourself. If I have, if I have all you guys and we say, okay, we're gonna have a meetup. I want to get 10 people on stage. Hey, Viva, get up and tell your story. Well, I don't even know where to start. But if I say, hey, everybody partner up because I do this at my own storytelling seminars. All right, everybody partner up. All right, Viva, you're going to tell Robert's story. You can do that in 15 minutes, right? So why can't you tell your own story in 15 minutes of preparation? But you can tell another person's story in 15 minutes of preparation. So you start with it's easier to tell someone else's story than yourself. And then you, then you do exercises to learn vulnerability, fear, what really drives people and someone else. And then you take those same skills and then you apply it to yourself. So that's also part of the methodology. And they taught that primarily in, at least at the trial lawyers college, the idea was to develop more empathy with your, with your clients, but also to be more persuasive in your storytelling. So it's easy to say, okay, my client was driving down the street, got hit by a car, and now my client can't walk, right? That, that's nine out of 10 lawyers are going to give you that with that fact pattern. But then if you, if you study this, you would say, do you notice like when you can't take a crap on your own and you have to have people who depended on you help lift you up? Have you ever had someone else wipe your butt? Can you imagine what that would feel like? A little bit different, right? A little bit of an emotional resonance is going to happen with that. But you can't get there and you can't be more persuasive without those skills. And that's why, by the way, people in the media hate me so much because they can't do this stuff. They don't have empathy, spirit, compassion. They don't have the methodology. So then when they try to attack me, you know, it doesn't even really work. But then I can tell my own story a hundred times more effectively than they could ever tell. They could ever tell a story. So they're trying to tell a story about me. That's largely untrue. And it's largely caricature, but they're not even effective storytellers. Whereas then I can come back and say, oh, that's the story you want to tell. Let's just flip that. And then we're going to 10X it. But again, that's all about mindset. Mindset is, okay, you're afraid. It's normal to be afraid, but why are you afraid? Let's think back to why you're afraid. When's the last time you're afraid? What did you do to, over what did you do to overcome that fear? What happened when you faced the fear? And then really dialing in on an individual level with someone else, that's what you do if you're at a, like a seminar or something. But then that's what you learn to do when you're by yourself. You learn so much about yourself that way. And then when you have that knowledge and you have the specific skills, then you can keep pushing through the fear barriers, the fear walls. Robert, you want to go for it? Well, yeah, yeah. The other compare is I think that just as your critics try to sort of do a boxing Helena on you and try to put you in a box and stick labels that don't belong, some people in your own audience have a tendency occasionally to do the same thing. And that I've always seen you as more of like Hunter Thompson than Dr. Gonzo. And I always thought where Hunter made a mistake was he went from narrator to propagandist. He went from, uh, from chronicler to participant. Uh, he went from describing commentator to being a activist 
And you've always it, it struck me as someone who's trying to narrate, trying to curate, trying to give ideas, inject self-empowerment through self-education and self-narration, but not necessarily be the Dr. Gonzo or in the way that Hunter Thompson ended up losing his career, kind of, because he got caricatured as a caricature uh, and consequently could not be seen as who he was for what he was. And the how have you tried to walk that line between explaining how the world is, letting people make their own decisions about how the world is, protecting people who are often attacked without uh, being stuck and caricatured in the way both some of your critics and some of your followers want to and get seem to get mad when you don't fit whatever label they want to put on you? Yeah, I had to live by experience. I went through that in 2016. 2017 where I played a little bit into what my more into what my audience wanted, which is the path to demagoguery. And they were pushing me in a direction that I didn't really feel comfortable after a while. And it's hard though, because you're getting the dopamine hits, you're getting incentivized, you're getting rewarded psychologically on, on every kind of level. And I think what, what, what changed, cause I was down that path. And, and I've seen others, but I saw others go down that path and implode themselves because your audience will lead you to doom, right? Uh, a famous person told me your fans can never get enough until they kill you, right? This was uh, mm -hmm. one of those world famous celebrities who's smart enough to not admit that he's Reds Mike Cernovich, right? Who said your fans will never get tired of you until they kill you. And I thought, fudge, fudge. Can you, you know, can you believe that? And that really is true. And I've seen that happen to other people. I saw, saw that, okay, they're because they're not trying to deliberately kill you. But the idea is that, you know, play that hit again, play that song for me again, play that same tune again, play it again, play it again. Oh, you're dead now. Okay. We're going to move on to the next hot thing until we kill that. So that was me learning. That was me learning, you know, through, through experience and through, through knowledge or through life, rather, that's the only way that you can learn things is you get slammed in the head a couple of times and you realize, OK, that person's gone on a path because I've told other people, you know, hey, brother, I'm not your mom, but you're kind of going on a path with this stuff and you should just think about it. I'm not going to judge you if you do it or you don't do it, but I can see where that path is taking you. And I've seen one person after another get banned, 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 banned. No, no it's, and it's interesting. It is the exact phenomenon it was steve martin i don't i don't know i didn't read hunter thompson but i watched steve martin who said that everyone ultimately becomes a caricature of themselves at least in in, in hollywood and the idea you know it's, it is an amazing thing your fans can't get enough of you until they kill you and the first two people i think of um are the two lawyers who who arguably got taken down a path that they might not have gotten taken down but for the uh seeming encouragement seeming uh dopamine rushes and thriving off, off of the information that they were providing, which might have led them to provide information without properly vetting it as they would have had they remained critical. Um, but the flip side is, uh, Mike, at what point do you not uh, go the opposite way out of necessity just to prove a point? So, and I, it brings us into some of the tweets that you've been making recently, which is, you know, you support Trump or you're a very vocal, active Trump supporter, but at some point, it could be perceived as being not inauthentic, but like a deliberate uh, breaking off and, and pushing back so as not to get uh, pushed too far. And then you take positions that you may not necessarily even believe in, but just to be defiant in the sense that I'm thinking back to the, it was a January tweet where you don't want Trump to, to run again and you'll sabotage his campaign if he does. Hyperbolic, proverbial speaking, but 
do you get pushed to the point where in order to not get pushed too far, you push back even if you don't necessarily fully believe in that which you're pushing back? No, so that would be called counter-signaling, which is kind of the coward's way out. But Robert, Robert can remember that I was the earliest critic of Trump in 2017. I turned on Trump probably th three months into his presidency because th the person whose name we can't say, not even if you're Rand Paul, the whistleblower we call him, the first reference to that person's name that had ever been printed was by me. And I reported, hey, this guy's right by McMaster. Here's where his office is. Here's where he sits. There's where the president is. They're leaking left and right. This is a setup. And so what? Nothing happened. They didn't do anything. So that's when I realized, okay, so I fell for the Trump hype too much. I hired the best people and let them work. This guy either doesn't get it, doesn't care. I don't know. But, it, but to me, I'm a results guy. I'm not a motive guy. The way I put it is God can judge your heart. I can judge your outcomes. So whether you come from a good place or a bad place, that's between you and God. I can only say you meant well, but, but guess what? You blew up the world. So I turned on him early. Now, granted, you know, granted, you still have in a, in a two-party system, which is why you can't have a third party in the U.S. We don't have a parliamentary system. We have a winner-takes-all system. So you have to choose Republican or Democrat, but I, so I turned on Trump early, but I kept my foot in the door enough that I had enough juice that I could, you know, the Trump's people still didn't want me yelling at him too much. So I, I did play a little bit of politics in terms of you probably want me to be your friend rather than not your friend, but I don't really like you. So with Trump, with the run up coming up or rather this past election, you notice in all of 2020, I didn't do a get out to vote drive. I didn't advocate to vote for Trump. I said what I liked about Trump, what I didn't. I didn't endorse him. And that wasn't because I was afraid. Although if I were afraid, then why was I afraid? Not a rhetorical question. So if I was afraid of being banned from social media for supporting Trump, what was the root cause of that fear? Robert, you want to field this one? <laughs> I be, well, you lose you lose your voice to the world. It was a rational belief. It was a rational belief that Trump would do nothing and nobody would do nothing, and I would just be another person in the dustbin. I would be a trending topic on Twitter for twelve hours. So, if I were afraid of being banned, and that wasn't what motivated me, it was because when Trump had the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, they didn't do anything. So then it comes into the point, this is what I kept telling people. Why are you going to be a martyr for a guy who doesn't care if you live or die? Right? Early on, like they start nuking people, nothing. They, they have full control of government. Nothing happens. They brush it aside. So had I been so the way I would look at it from a mindset point of view is if I'm pro-Trump and I get banned, I martyred myself for what? But that wasn't the, 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 the push. The push was that, and Robert can tell you this because he's familiar, familiar with um, Gorilla Mindset. I interceded in the 2015-2016 election because I truly believed in my heart that Hillary Clinton was an existential threat to the world. I did not, fear that, I did not feel that way about Joe Biden. I don't feel that way about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is doing things with critical race theory, other things that I don't like. I don't think he's a, the best person to be president. I think Trump would be a better president. But in 2016, she was trying to drive us into World War III 
with Russia and Syria. She was an existential threat. Kamala Harris, and people are going to say, oh, this is gender-based. Trust me, I oppose Jeb Bush for the same reason that I opposed Hillary Clinton, for the same reason I opposed Kamala Harris. Nothing to do with the gender. It is, she would, she's a truly evil person. She kept innocent people in prison. This can be fact-checked in real time. Daniel Larson, you can fact-check all this stuff. Before she ran, you can read all the articles of what she did as California Attorney General. And then that all went, of course, away because if you're a conservative and you tweet something bad 10 years ago, that'll follow you forever. But if you're a Democrat and you keep an innocent man in prison, hey, bro, that's your politics. Who can do anything? So she is a uniquely evil person. Joe Biden, I don't consider a uniquely evil person. Hillary Clinton, I did. So for me in 2020, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, I'd obviously rather have Trump. But I'm. this isn't like Hillary Clinton. This is not like Kamala Harris. This is not like Jeb Bush. This is not like Liz Cheney or Dick Cheney or even maybe Marco Rubio, who I think would be pretty bad because he, he wants us to go into Venezuela. So that was what animated all of this was just a rational kind of calculation of who, who is truly bad for the world order and who wasn't. And then how much risk I want to take or it's not even risk. It's actually how much I want to work. A lot of people don't realize you guys stream a lot. You know how it is when you get your brain plugged into social media you're on your phone all the time. You're thinking about Twitter all the time. Somebody says something to you on Twitter. You're in your head when you're taking a walk, responding to it. And I'm not saying that's bad because I've done it and, and maybe sometimes do it. But you have to ask, like, okay, what am I? What is the stakes here? This is a relationship. I have a relationship with my audience. They call me a cuck. They insult me. They tell me I'm not pro-Trump. I'm a patriot. I'm a shill. I'm controlled opposition. I'm fake. And then every now and then somebody will be kind of nice to me. So, so this man, I, I don't feel like I'm getting enough out of this relationship. Or if I'm helping Trump win, brother, I'm helping you win. Do you know what that means? Do you know what I'm capable of? What am I getting, bro? A retweet now and then? I don't care. Once you get the retweet, once you have the cool guy points where you can screenshot, 10 retweets don't mean any more difference to me than one. So why in the world? Would I devote my spiritual and psychological energy for Donald J. Trump, who raised $260 million to investigate the election after the election? And nobody knows where that money is, but it's not going into a defense fund for the people charged with uh, trespassing. It's not going to help any MAGA grandmas. Everybody else is on their own. We don't know where that money went. So get real, right? Get, get real. That, but that said, if other people do it on principle and everything, I'm totally okay with them doing it. But for me, it's a relationship boundary issue where I don't feel like this is a healthy relationship for me, including with the audience, the pro-Trump people audience. So I made it clear I wanted a lot of them gone. I've lost – when Twitter did that purge, I lost 75,000 followers, which a lot of people did. I probably lost another 100,000 in terms of opportunity cost. I, I mean, in terms of opportunity cost, I would be at probably a million and a half, two million followers if I were just like a MAGA guy. So I've, I would say I've lost at least a million followers, but it would be an unhealthy relationship to me, which is again, mindset, because my wife used to try this on me when we first started dating. She would go, well, you can't respond that way to me because you because of gorilla mindset. And I would say, well, honey, if you read the book, the book is all about boundaries too. The book doesn't mean that you can you know treat me a certain way. And because I'm able to emotionally auto-regulate those feelings 
that therefore I should accept the relationship however it is. It's also very much about like drawing boundaries. It's about, do I feel like the love? Ross Ubrick didn't get the commutation that I wanted. Snowden and Assange, I think they should have gotten pardons, but at least I could kind of understand. But just give me something, bro. We wanted Ross. We made it clear for a year we wanted Ross. There's no reason in the world. And actually, Ross would have stuck it to Schumer, SDNY. It would have been saying it would just been poking a hot needle like Achilles did at the Cyclops, right? Right into SDNY. And he couldn't do it. So I'm thinking, I can't get one little thing out of you. Jared Kushner can get his dad a pardon, though. I can't get one thing out of you. No way in the world am I going to try to help you win in 2020. Get real. What I think it was fascinating is you had the first success with the book, with Gorilla Mindset. You transition into MAGA 3X 2015, 2016. One of the most influ- – I mean, you helped platform a whole Lord, bunch of people. I stated that too, by the way. Oh, you knew about yes. that. You, were the, you knew about that when it happened. It, it just yeah. – Technofog well, broke the story a couple months ago. Robert knew when it went down. Mueller investigated a Twitter hashtag, and once word got around DC press, even people that didn't like me – they were laughing. They were they were like they laughed off the they were like, Are you you're kidding me? You're investigating a hashtag and they were calling it electioneering, right? So oh, yeah, I mean, all I my mean, records, everything. The deep state apparatus took what you did very seriously because Mueller put it under major investigation. You had the national security advisor bring you up and target you. So the uh and and uh, that you recognized early on. I mean, you organized the deplorable. I mean, uh, you helped organizing those events across the country, trying to make a meaningful difference, translate the Trump, Trump revolution into a broader, little d, democratizing populist revolution. And we're one of the first people to recognize that the Trump administration was never going to achieve those revolutionary goals, that whatever good intentions Trump may have, it was not translating to policy. It was not translating to personnel at a broad scale level. And his lack of understanding of the critical role of reciprocal loyalty, particularly to his core uh, populist advocates, was a major problem in his entire four years. Now, what's fascinating to me is your ability to then transition out of that into a third new authorship area where you end up doing the film Hoaxed. It ends up being one of the biggest films out there. What led you into, I mean, because most people, uh, they just dream about one level of success. Uh, when you don't have the credentialed class background, your parents weren't professional class people with all the connections and friends and relationships. You don't have the prep school or the Ivy League patting you on the back. You have to self-make this everywhere, self-create it everywhere. But you do it again and again and again. And I like to cite it as an example to people out there of what they can do through your example. What led you to think, hey, I can produce a film and I can produce a highly successful film and a highly politically influential film in a totally different space than the space I've been occupying before? Yes, I have two answers, the truthful answer and then the more counterfactual answer. The truthful answer is, Every asshole moves to LA and says, I'm going to write a book and make a movie. And they never do. So I thought I'm going to write a book and I'm going to make a movie. And the longer answer is that there's a creative drive, I'm sure. So I started off with silence, which was my first film and it didn't really land the way it could, the way it should have, you know, largely not my fault, but I guess my fault in a way where everything's your fault if you're involved. And I just, I felt like after silenced, I, I still, I felt like I hadn't left it all on the field, right? There was just a sense 
that because you've done trials, Robert. You know, you guys have done hard things in your life where you're on your ass at night and you're like, I gave it everything I had. Whatever happens, happens. But I'm not going to wake up the next day and say I could have done something differently. And with my first film, I felt that way with Gorilla Mindset. There, I felt that way where, okay, I did the best book I could do. If it doesn't make it, then I just don't have that X factor to be a writer. And that's fine. By the way, Mike. I didn't um, feel that way with my first film. How, uh, Gorilla Mindset, what, what are the stats on it? Do you know how many, how many downloads, how many copies sold? No, I quit counting at 100,000 copies. So, yeah, I quit counting at 100,000 copies. And so wherever it is now, I don't think it's millions, but it's over 100,000. I wanted 10,000 copies because this is – actually, Jordan Peterson said this in his first Joe Rogan interview. He said, if my book sold 25,000 copies, I would be like, wow, man. Most books um, – actually, only 1% of books sell more than 10,000 copies. So I said, all right, first book. Yeah, that's why when people – if you have a book, people assume you're rich. And you're like, no. New York Times – I know a lot of New York Times bestselling authors – they sell maybe 5,000 copies the first week. That'll get you on the list most of the time if you have a, a, a publisher they deem reputable. And then the book dries up after a month or two, and they maybe end up with ten or 15,000. So I wanted, I would have been thrilled with 10,000. I did that the first month when I was like, oh, my, you know, 10,000. I thought I was reading the, reading the stats wrong. This was in 2015, I think I launched it. And then I thought, do, do a movie. Silence came out the first Candace Owens, um, that, that's trivia. The first time she was in media was in silence. That was her first her first appearance. And it didn't, you know, it just didn't have that je ne sais quoi, right? It didn't have that it factor. So with I said, I got to do one more. You know, I got to do one more. I found the right guys to do it. We grinded it out. And I'll always remember because they sent the rough cut. I was driving to a dinner and... They sent the rough cut and I had read it, read it in his group chat. And Shauna, my wife said, Michael, you have to stop whatever you're doing and watch this. This is everything you wanted. So I pulled over to Phil's Coffee, Huntington Beach. And I thought, oh my God. Cause I was about, to, you know, I was like, I, I'm, I'm going to probably try to watch it while driving. And I knew we had a wild factor. And then I, you know, we had to cut it down. We had to do a lot of other changes. But I, I just knew Scooter and John, that we, we had the right relationship where I was the producer. I outlined kind of the vibe, the interviews for the most part. I did most of the big interviews. And then I let them be the directors. I let them, because they wanted to shoot it in film noir. This is kind of film trivia. But when they first started shooting, I thought, oh my God, they're this is way too artsy. They wanted the dim lighting, that theater effect, the film noir. And I thought, oh man, okay, but I'm going to, the director's, we had a cinematographer too, Justin Gum, who's quite talented. And then it turned out Altered Carbon came out while we were still in post-production, which had this hybrid of film noir, sci-fi. So film noir is a specific cinematographical way of filming. So you have it's more darker with the shadows. It almost looks like there's a shadow around the frame. And then Altered Carbon came out, which, by the way, is a great thought experiment into consciousness. And I think people should watch that show, but season one. And I was like, this is a vibe of hoax. I felt really good. I was like, all right, I was a skeptical at first, but I let them be the directors and then they, and then they nailed it. So for that, that was a, but that was a lot of work, even as a producer and all, all the other things that you have to do, the, you know, raising money, promoting it, hyping it. 
providing direction. You want, you know, because you want to keep people on deadlines. Creative people aren't that easy to keep on deadlines. You don't want to be too pushy. It's a delicate balance, and I, I think we nailed it. Uh, Mike, actually, I want to get to something. I'm going to bring this up. I think I know the answer already. Cerno, would you consider being in Trump's cabinet if he runs again in 2024? No, because that would be a severe distraction from the Trump administration. I and I don't want to. So two reasons. One is I don't want to. Two is it, it would just be if he somehow wins re-election in 2024, then he would be probably around 18 players, which he wasn't around in 2020. That would mean Jared and Ivanka are gone. It would mean Don Jr. is in there. What do they need me? You know, they can read my tweets and if they, if they want to know what I have to think. So I would rather be in what's called the kitchen cabinet, which I suppose I was for four years. The kitchen cabinet is a U.S. term for the idea that people you, you look to for guidance maybe, but they don't have an official position. But going in, the playing politics with people all day. And, and the fact is, too, one thing nice about not being seen as pro-Trump anymore is just the amount of people hitting you up for stuff. Hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? People I never heard of. Can you do this for me? Uh, since I tweet less, I don't have people link whoring to me as much as anymore. It used to be I'd wake up and my Twitter was just countless people with DMs of their articles. I'm like, am I mentioning the article? Have you reviewed hoax? Have you reviewed Gorilla Mindset? And then I'll go to their timeline. They'd never retweet me, right? They pretend I don't exist. So one thing of, because here's a joke. Um, I, my next book is called Audacity, How to Go from Nobody to Somebody. And a friend of mine who knows me very well goes, your final chapter or the next book will be how to go from somebody to nobody. And I laughed it off. This was about two years ago, but that's kind of where I am. I'm not doing much streams. I don't, you know, I do stuff with you guys because I like the conversation. I like to talk, but I'm not tweeting very much. I'm not trying to be particularly relevant. I'm trying to go from somebody to nobody, at least for a little while. Now I, I, there's a, I, I read the chat and you seem to draw a lot of haters, Cerno. But one thing I've noticed, and I've always wanted to ask you this, people say you block them on Twitter. And and I know you do, and I know and I and I understand the rationale for doing it. People don't really fully appreciate. On the one hand, I, I don't think you're psychologically uh affected by the negative and the tweets and the hate, but it it becomes a distraction to the point where it it detracts from the environment. Now I understand that I tend, maybe I don't get as much hate and I tend not to block, tend not, I, I don't, but you do. And people call you out on it and they call you a hypocrite for it. But I mean, my question is, do you not, why do you do it? And the second question is, do you not inadvertently give them attention and satisfaction? Now they get to say, I, I got under Cerno's skin so much that he had to block me. Well, one is if you've been blocked by me, congratulations, you're one of 10, 15,000 people that I don't even know exist. So good job. In terms of why I block people, I actually thought about if I ever did a show again, it would be called Why I Blocked You. And I would do it every Friday mm -hmm. and I would pick out five tweets and I have more than five every, every um, week for sure. And I think it'd be kind of funny. So number one is I read my replies. I read them. I want to know what people have to think. If you're replying to me in a way that is what I would call Viagra spam before machine learning and everything got good, you almost couldn't read your email anymore because it was Nigerian uh, gold scams, inheritance scams, Cialis, Viagra, you know, you name it. It wasn't filtered to spam. So people were just like emails not even worth it anymore. So when you're making a comment, 
you're not hurting my feet. It's just like you sent me spam. Would you like to buy Viagra, sir? I don't get insecure if you ask me if I want Viagra. I have used Cialis before. I'm, I'm quite in favor of it for the proper occasion. So you're not like humiliating me. It's just, oh my God, you're the 50th person asking me for Viagra, like soliciting drugs. So I get a lot of what I call like mansplaining where people like correct me, but it'll be usually wrong. And I'm thinking, okay, you're just wrong. So you're blocked. If I read it and I don't like the tone, I just think that's not a very nice thing to say. <laughs> you're blocked. If you're linking to, so today, why I blocked people. Um, I tweeted something about cardio and then a guy tagged in another guy essentially to ask the other guy if what I was saying was true. So I blocked the guy he tagged and the guy he who um, initial guy who replied to me because, hey, man, if, if you read me and you don't like it, don't bring other guys into this like, hey, why don't you and him fight? You're blocked. I don't need that in my life because obviously I know what I'm talking about. That was one. Uh, another one was – uh, somebody posted something wrong about ayahuasca or no, no, no. I, I blocked him because I tweet about ayahuasca and he was like, well, that's an abnormal thing to do. And I said, no, actually it's abnormal to live in fear and judgment. And then he goes, well, according to the mainstream definition, ayahuasca. And I said, I'm just going to block you because you're just dead weight. And, and you want to be like some clever boy. Well, technically abnormal would mean if you had a bell curve distribution on views of people, like I don't know what a bell curve is, right? So so within a tweet, I can draw through my mindset work a psychological profile. And that guy falls in the, the what do you call the clever boys? Oh, they're like the guys in the IQ meme, the midwits. Oh, you're so clever. I don't know that abnormal technically means that if there's a, it's a standard deviation or two away from the mean, you're so smart, you clever little boy. So I don't want to read clever boys because they're not smart. They're not adding anything. They're dead weight. I blocked another guy. It, like if you say brain drugs will fry, uh, fry your brain. Okay, you're just a boomer repeating propaganda. So by the way, none of these are hurting my feelings. That's what I'm saying. People think they get under my skin. No, no, no. I'm actually... I, I believe what I'm doing, and this is maybe because we tell stories and sometimes the stories we tell ourselves aren't true. I believe that I'm giving you good real world feedback, which is we live in an attention economy. We live in a world where people buy ads on Twitter so you can see their tweets. We live in a world where people say, please retweet. Follow me on Twitter. I'm a true patriot. I'm running against Maxine Waters. Blah, blah. We live in that world. I'm saying that I don't want your attention. That is valuable life feedback. Because if you're a clever boy, to me, you're probably a clever boy to your friends and family. You're probably a clever boy on a date. And people are thinking, God, this person's annoying. And then they just don't talk to you anymore. Or they, you know, they don't invite you to things. And you're thinking, gosh, I'm such a clever boy, but I don't really have the relationships I want. I don't have the career that I want. And I'm saying, this is why, bro. This is why. That could be very valuable feedback that could potentially change their lives. <laughs> yes. For your, uh, for your own daughters, uh, in terms of like, I look back and uh, I would have not had my son and daughter go to public schools, even though, you know, it was Malibu High School, middle school and Signal Mountain. I mean, these are supposed to be really good schools and so on and so forth. But increasingly, there's just no place where the mind or the soul is safe in our current public and even a lot of private education. Uh, what are you thinking you're going to do for your own daughters? Well, luckily, Sean is more radicalized than I am. So they're doing homeschooling pods. 
we're talking about moving to an intentional living world. So people are, I did a long thread about this and I, I call it a trend because just a lot of times I'm either making trends or seeing trends or riding trends. It's always kind of hard to tell where you are, right? It's the idea that you're on top of a wave, you think you made it, but you're actually a leaf. There's some like Taoism poetry, like, oh, I shall go here now, I shall go there now. And you realize you're nothing but a leaf blowing in the wind. But whatever the case is, intentional living is certainly the next big thing. Intentional communities. Hey, we like these people. We're going to go live in an area where other people like like each other. Homeschooling pods. You can have a person who's an expert in a field teach a certain thing. Co-ops now are big where you just you hire a really good tutor. You pay him a good salary. Like imagine you're a teacher making 150000 a year. But if you're if you split that between 10 parents, that's cheaper in public school, right? So if you can find 10 parents, rather than pay 25,000 on public school, maybe it's 15,000, or maybe you have 15 parents, you know, you want to keep it small enough. But you're at, so then you hire a tutor that can teach the kids. The kids will get more individualized attention, it'll be a better education. So intentional living is going to be a huge movement in the country, and, and we're definitely part of that either as advocating for it or as living it and following the trends, but deeply, uh, you know, right before I came on board or rather right before I came out here to stream, I was with Rumi. <laughs> She's two years old. She fell off the couch. And, you know, it's one of those things where you see they're about to fall and you're like, ah, and everything goes in slow motion. I watched her fall and she gets up and she's crying for her mom. So I said, Rumi, come here. And I held her. I said, you're not hurt. You're startled. There's a difference. So you teach them at a very young age. Hey, if I heard your head thud against the carpet, then I know that you're hurt. But if you just sort of fall down, but you happen to judo fall and you're not actually hurt, there's no thud, you're, you're just startled. So early on, we're teaching them a really nuanced understanding of emotions. Hey, you were startled. It's okay to be startled. Take a deep breath. So let me go. <sighs> we teach her deep breathing at early age. We do that with Syrah. Syrah, you know, are you afraid or are you hurt? No, no, but I was just startled. Okay, yeah, we all get startled. You see something you don't know, but startled is different from hurt. And you want to teach those gradations of emotions because, you you know, the, Robert, you guys, you, both of you have kids. You, you see now adults are just parenting mistakes. You can see when your own children like, oh, my God, I know adults like that, where they'll create a problem out of thin air, and then they'll treat your reaction to the problem as a problem. So with Syrah, Syrah will say, oh, you did X. And I'll go, oh, is that what happened? Yeah. Okay, so what happened before X? Well, I did that. And I go, oh, so what if you hadn't done that? Well, yeah, okay. So just very early reinforcing those messages, I think, as a parent is the most important because we just, we deconstruct everything. Like, why do you feel this way? Oh, you're shy. Okay, it's normal to feel shy. It's good to feel shy. There are bad people in the world that you should watch out for. So as a father, I'm glad that you're a little bit shy. But here in this environment, do you, know, do you really need to be shy? Do you really need to hold on to my leg the whole time? Do you need to be afraid in this environment? So very, very early on, you're teaching them all these lessons. That's the best kind of homeschooling that you can teach them. The, the auto-regulation of emotions, the deep breathing, the sense that, oh, I'm not actually hurt. Because if you tell someone you're hurt, that makes them hurt more. Oh, I, you know, I'm really in pain. Actually, you know, you're just startled, right? You're just a little bit startled, right? Yeah. And so you, you feel maybe a two, whereas you thought that you should feel an eight or a nine. 
and pain and you're just, you're a two and, and that two matters and we love you and we're going to hug you and don't get me wrong, but we're, we're not going to run like it's a five along emergency and then reinforce that behavior that every time you're a little bit startled, the whole world is going to kind of build a bubble around you. So we do that with kids at very, very early age. And we do affirmations that, you know, I'm strong, I'm brave, I believe in myself, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, what I, about social media influence? Because I underestimated, frankly, because none of us grew up with it as kids and how much it was. And I wasn't a big fan of safe space culture, you know, play date culture, any of it. I thought it was uh, creating, yeah, I used to joke with my brother, if you really want to prepare your kids, throw them into a lion's pit, and then they're going to come out. That's part of the reason why we have the certain strengths that we did is the difficulties we experienced as kids. But in retrospect, the social, I underestimated the extreme negative influence of social media on a whole generation, particularly girls. And I mean, you see it in the stats, four to five times levels of self-harm. I mean, the emotional manipulation goes, in my view, is more damaging than the political censorship and suppression. What they've done to people's self-esteem, their psychology, this birth and breeding of narcissist politics like AOC, uh, you know, which took, you know, populist left ideas like Bernie Sanders and sort of bastardizes it into this narcissistic look in the mirror version of politics. What do you think you're going to do with your own daughters? growing up in terms of social media influence and access. Yeah. So what you mentioned, I would have underestimated myself too, but luckily I do have, uh, you know, a, a younger fan base and I'll see girls who are 19 talk about how they need college in this. I'm, I'm, I don't even rejuvenate or whatever. I'm like, I don't even know. I'm old. I don't even know what you people are talking about at a very early age. I remember when we were growing up, you know, plastic surgery wasn't even a thing until maybe in your twenties there, they spend all this time on social media. They nitpick every little flaw they have. They're like, okay, I need Botox. I need fillers here. I need the, the Joker lip things, the body issues, not understanding how Instagram filters work. They're being essentially groomed to be, have 18th birthday. If you have an OnlyFans on your 18th birthday, you were groomed. The grooming of children for sexualization, all of that is stuff that I would have underestimated too. So we're going to just say no for as long as we possibly can. And then as they get older, they're going to fight that hard. And we're just prepared to have that fight. I'll just say from, from my own kid's perspective, who wanted to have a YouTube channel. And I said, just picture when you put anything out there, look at yourself in the mirror and, and, and pick out the nastiest thing that you think about yourself. And you're going to get that uh, more often than you can possibly imagine on social media. But the, the, the whole thing about the hypersexualization of children, the grooming of children, we we say it's a new phenomenon, but go back to Shirley Temple in in the in the brothel or in that in I forget what the name of the movie was. I, I'm what I'm now realizing, it's always existed in one form or another. We're only it's only maybe now coming to the surface as clearly as it is, and it's always been there, and it's always been terrible, devastating, and awful. It's just been much easier to hide before this. Maybe now we're being conditioned more to accept it. I don't think so, but I mean, it, it's, it's always been there in one form or another. Right. There was a scene cut from The Godfather, which showed that the original studio head that the Tom, the, the concierge was going to work with, there was a 14-year-old girl was leaving the guy's house crying. And they cut that scene from the movie because that would make the kill or rather killing the horse look more justified morally. Okay, this was a really bad guy. Mm -hmm. And to create the character arc of The Godfather just means business doesn't take no for an answer. They cut that part out. So yeah, that the Godfather was made what in the 60s, 70s. 
And there was a problem with grooming underage girls as studio heads, molesting 14-year-olds even at the time. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's only more real in the terms of like we're living, we're living in it. But there's always been there's always been that problem. I'm sure if you go way back and read old literature, we would see things that would mortify us. Yeah, and then we rationalize us like, well, I mean, kids matured, you know, people, I'm sure they would have some kind of historical revisionism about it. But yeah, we would be mortified, I'm sure. But for me, it's real to me now in the way that all of us in our lives believe that something didn't exist until we recognize this existence. Uh, that, that's why I'm saying like my, my people make the joke about the red pill and the blue pill. And some people are making my joke about what's, what's after the, the blue pill, the red pill, whatever the next step. But like, I'm looking back, I was watching, um, uh, was it clueless with Alicia Silverstone who ends up, you know, going out with her older stepbrother when she's, when she's yeah. in high school, I, I, I went back and, and saw, uh, the professional with Luc Besson and the little girl. You go, I go back and watch Taxi Driver with with Robert De Niro, and now I realize I, they this type of indoctrination has been around as long as as long as it's been around forever. So you know, we, we I think the greatest thing about social media and the internet is it's making everyone hyper aware of it. I can no longer look at Hollywood. I can't even look at Disney cartoons the same way anymore. Seeing what I see now, what was the other one? Oh, it's all, but it's, it's been all over the place. I think. We're just becoming more aware of it that it's always been there. Maybe that's like the well, collection. Social media gives them access to in a way that they never would have had before. So everybody, I think everybody grew up, there was kind of a hometown. Maybe he wasn't a pedo, but it was always, okay, that's the house. Even a small town, like nobody goes near that house. Everybody kind of had a sense that that was kind of the creepy guy. There was a high school teacher who would come and maybe rub the girls on the back of their um, you know, shoulders, like my typing class, that was that he would come over and he didn't, you know, fornicate or anything, but it was just always the idea that, Hey, this guy's, and he would sometimes rub the guy's shoulders too. Never mind, I wasn't very good looking. I had a lot of acne and yeah. So there, but there, but the difference was you're like, well, that's the pervy guy. Just kind of watch yourself a little bit. That's the house. Don't, don't walk past the house. Now it's like, no, all those pervy guys and a million other are on the internet. And they're trying to access your kids. Oh, oh crap! Now what? It, it is. I'll say that not not to find the silver lining, but it it does. It emphasizes the importance of of having an open discussion with kids. Which I I'm not the banning of the social media parent. I'm more like I'm going to see everything. So we'll do it. You'll, you'll do it, and you'll do it openly. And I don't watch all the terrible movies. This is what you have to look out for in life. And I I I think banning it is 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 too much. It's too torturous, especially in certain environments. So it's, it's not the practical solution, but, um, you know, someone, I saw a chat earlier about, uh, the other name you can't be mentioned who didn't, uh, who didn't off himself sort of you've done work exposing the documents. You had Epstein. There was another one that you had filed and I'm forgetting who it was in the context. Now, uh, it was a motion to unseal documents. We talked about it the last time and it said, it's going to be a matter of time before the judge gets to it. What was it? And what's the status of it? And well, also, also, are you going to make another a motion to unseal that I, I, I publicly, I don't want to go forward with it yet, but I can a little bit. And then there was another one that was rejoined by the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press over a year ago, trying to get the voir dire question and answers for the Roger Stone trial. It was. And the judge has done what judges do in the U.S., which is just not going to respond. So what happened in that case, which is interesting, is, you know, Norm Pattis, who's a friend of mine, good friend of mine, we always wanted to do a case together. It was always our dream. It never really aligned. And what Norm kind of found himself in this world that was weird because 
people started asking me, oh, you ever heard of this Norm Pattis guy? And he's just kind of a country lawyer from Connecticut. And I was like, not only do I know this guy, you know, but da 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 da. So we had this history. And I was like, all right, well, let's just do this Roger Stone um, thing. And that was over a year ago. So what happened is I filed a motion. And I think the judge would have denied it if it were just me and say, he's a crank, a crackpot, he's a bad guy. But what happened was the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press filed an amicus curiae brief on behalf of the New York Times, Fox News, just a bipartisan brief saying, hey, Cernovich, is that, they, they actually don't even mention my name in the body of the motion. So if you go to rcfp.org, you can find the amicus brief. And I'm in the captions. But in the body of it, they don't want to mention my name. So it's like the basically the person who wanted this thing, let's not talk about it all, which I'm fine with. So that puts the judge in a predicament, which is that, because when I filed the amicus brief, I got a lot of hate from Blue Check Law Twitter. I think Robert remembers that because he was like, what are you guys talking about? This is like established law. This is not some crank thing you're looking for. There, there was a Henry Grand Jury subpoena involving the pro athletes on steroids. This is this is not actually a, comp, um, a controversial issue, but Blue Check Church was like, this This is harassment. What an evil guy. And then the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press files the amicus brief. And then rather than say, and by the way, this goes to how the narrative works, rather than say, oh, sorry, Cernovich, uh, you know, I guess maybe we didn't understand. They don't even mention that the brief was filed. So nobody even knows that there's this amicus brief filed by New York Times, Fox News, again, bipartisan group. They don't even know that brief was filed because to mention that brief would mean that you have to mention me as being something other than a vile goo, ghoul, and they don't want to do that. But on the law, the judge can't deny it. Well, I mean, judges can do anything. But on the law, the judge is kind of has to release it. So the judges won't rule at all. And there's nothing you can do in the U.S. at least – to compel a judge to respond to a motion. They have in, in Canada, you have, I think it's three to six months to render judgment depending on the, but that's if it's taken in deliberation. What's the status of the request? It's just the motion's been filed. That's it. Any pleadings, written, oral, dates scheduled? No, um, no. Just, we filed our thing. Uh, reports made for pre and press filed their thing. The judge did appoint an amicus to argue why we shouldn't get it. Um, and a, a very far left-wing lawyer, a blue check Twitter kind of person filed amicus saying it shouldn't be released. But the idea is you can release it with the names redacted and the identifying information redacted. That's what the law says. And the law is so clearly established that the judge would have to ignore the law to do it. And the judge probably knows that I'm smart enough that we'll just litigate this all the way to the Second Circuit or rather, rather DC Circuit. And we'll take it all the way up as, as we need to. Like, we're going to litigate it just like we did with Epstein. And this one with Norm was just kind of a friends and family thing that we're doing anyway. So it's not like, you know, not like I'm going to break the bank on this one like with Epstein. So we're like, hey, just respond. And, and they won't. The judge is just sitting on it. So that – but but that would be interesting. The, the, the questions, the kind of jury you can get in D.C., is it really a fair trial? Vardir in federal court. You know, it was quite interesting where because when you read the <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. If you've ever read a transcript for our dear federal court, it'll basically be like, hey, have you heard of Mike Sermich? Yeah. Do you like him? No, I think he's the scum of the earth. Do you think that you can set aside your personal beliefs of Mike Sermich to follow the law? I do. <laughs> Boom. It really is that bad in, in federal courts in the U.S. 
That's how far deer goes. It's judge conducted for the most part. So you can imagine the kind of answers that you're going to get from that var deer and the kind of stuff we're going to see. And the judges don't want that public because it, it shows what a farce the jury selection was. Because even with regards to Roger, you know, I'm not here to defend him or condemn him. That's, you know, we can all have our opinions on, or maybe he could have handled things a little bit differently. You know, if you're a 63 year old lawyer, maybe don't even joke about kicking someone's dog. You know what I mean? It's just the guy's under subpoena. Don't even text him. You're a lawyer. I'm 43 and I'm a lawyer. I know that. Maybe don't do that. So we're not here to talk about the underlying facts. But from what I understand, uh, a Republican was struck from the jury pool for cause because he worked in Republican politics. But then Democrat staffers were not struck for cause. And I have a good faith basis that that's what the, the Vardir would reveal. So we're just not going to get it. And there's no way to accelerate it. We're just going to wait for it. Yeah, not in the States. Now, you mentioned the book as a future project. My recollection is you were possibly working on an Epstein film also as a future project. What are some of the future projects you're uh, looking at? Yeah, the, the documentary Epstein has been in various phases of production due to the schedules of Scooter and John. So hopefully we can get out. What we did was we wanted to do something really ambitious like hoaxed. Part of mindset is being reasonable, right? Believe in yourself, shoot for the moon, or rather shoot for the stars. You maybe just lay on the moon, however the cliche goes. So it looks like we're going to do something more episodic, launch in episode one. And that if, if that really does, if it crushes, right? If it really, there's a lot of interest, then we'll do four or five episodes because we wanted to make hoax an episode thing anyway. The, you know, people say movies are dead, but that's only because shows have gotten so good. Wild Wild Country, Tiger King, right? The Everything good now is done episodically. Or rather, everything great now is done episodically. And we were going to do host episodically, but the backers really wanted a film because film still has that cachet, the glitz, but that's changing. So we'll do episode one, Epstein. I hope in three months. I don't want to have a firm timeline because it's not all in my control. But I think reasonably within three to six months, really killer episode, no pun intended, and then dad joke. And then we'll see how that lands. And if it lands big, then keep telling the story. That'll be, that is, um, yeah, that, that'll be an interesting thing. No, no one has touched it. I, what, I don't even know what happened with the story that they, uh, they did not air at, uh, uh, was it NBC or CBS, whatever, whatever, whatever broadcast station it was. Um, are, are you both following the Chauvin, uh, it's not the jury selection in Chauvin? Yeah. Yeah. Jack Posobiec has been tweeting out those, and that's in state court. So in most state courts, you I'm not pretending to be some like great trial lawyer or whatever. You know, Robert has way, way, way more knowledge of this. But it's generally understood that in state court, you get a pretty good Vardir. And in federal court, if, unless you're the prosecutor, then you get a great Vardir. In federal court, you're screwed. Uh, you really are. But from what I've read, at least uh, Pasovic's been live tweeting the streams as he's watching it. They're, they're getting a good, a good Vardir. I don't know that you can ever get a fair trial given the venue and given the other issues. But I don't think anybody looking at that would say that that was necessarily a really bad jury. I think you're going to get the best jury that you possibly could, and certainly a better one than you could get in federal court. Uh, I mean, no doubt. I mean, it's by far the best voir dire I've seen, maybe ever. 
because it's a com combined written questionnaire months in advance. So plenty of time to review the information and the content and the value of the information and individualized sequestered questioning, which is unheard of even at state court level. Uh, that's why he set aside three weeks to pick the jury. Now, I think, you know, we've, we've all had experience with lawyers. In my view, most lawyers are bad at jury selection. Um, and it has been unsettling. The biggest revelatory aspect of the case so far, to me, has been the power of combined social media and rioting has changed people's uh, knowledge of cases. Like even high-profile cases, you usually got 10 to 20% of a jury pool who knew very little about it. You know, they were not in that world. They didn't watch news. They didn't read newspapers. The problem is everybody's description is they were bombarded with this on their Instagram feed, their Facebook feed, their Twitter, whatever. A lot of them were not on Twitter. It's Instagram and Facebook, especially. They've seen the videos. They've seen the photos. And so uh, the degree to which they're all negative is, I, I agree with Mike, I don't think it's possible to pick a good, a fair jury out of Minneapolis from what I've seen. He's going to get the best jury he could have got. But the problem is even that jury comes in, 90% of them are coming in saying they already think he's guilty. And that that's a problem, uh, well, in my view, from a constitutional perspective. I think the court ended up making a mistake by letting it be in Hennepin County. and But I don't know how much he could have fixed it because maybe it's a nationwide problem. Maybe you just could not find a jury pool because of social media and rioting. The rioting kept the story over and over and over in the news a lot longer and in social media a lot longer than most people, most cases like this would. So I was startled by the scale. It said something for me in cases I have coming up that picking a fair jury is going to be much harder than even normal in high profile yeah. cases. You imagine, you figure uh, how many people are on YouTube, 2 billion and, and Facebook 1.6 billion. And, and if you figure that the majority, the majority are in, the, you know, Western countries, Europe, North America, it, and these things trend. There was blackout, what was it, blackout Tuesday on Instagram, which Facebook, yeah, it's impossible. I mean, I, I was just, I, I was watching a bit of it. It's it's fascinating. Everybody should watch it. Uh, but the one thing I'm thinking about, people are bringing it up. These jury members have no idea the threats that they're going to get and, and the doxing. It isn't the rise that happened. It's, do you vote not guilty knowing that you might be murdered or your children might be murdered if you vote not guilty. That's a moral courage that even the three of us would, would have difficulty mustering, let alone some normal person trying to live his life in a forty to $50,000 a year job. Do you, do you go bankrupt and make your family homeless because you vote not guilty? There, so, there's, so there's a 0% chance that he can get what would be a fair trial. But the voir dire to the extent that, that I've read it and studied it is as good as it's going to get. And it's actually above and beyond what I could have expected given the circumstances. No doubt. Well, the other thing is fascinating is the prosecutors, this tells you how the cancel culture effect is cancerous on our society and now impacting law. But, but when blue checkmark crowd is trying to pretend it doesn't exist these days is that the, the prosecutors are the ones exploring. Do you feel worried about safety and they're moving to strike for cause anybody who says they're worried about their safety. And it dawned on me why they know the only people who are worried about their safety are people who are thinking about the possibility of acquittal. So the because you're not worried about your safety if you're voting to convict, you know, they're yeah, going to build statutes. To you. 
Yeah, that's one of the ways that what, what's their expression for my friends, everything from my enemies, the law. That's one of those neutral questions that judges love. Hey, this person has not expressed their viewpoint. They've just said that they're not afraid. You can't infer anything about that answer. Judges love that kind of because it's a pretextual question where we all know why it's being asked. And a judge with a little bit better courtroom control would say, hey, we know what, we know what you're doing here. But no, no, no. Judges, judges love those kind of questions. Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't see how he gets a fair trial, even though based on everything I've seen as my legal opinion. And I think I don't know any again, other than the blue check Twitter people who said that it was a, a cringe crank move for me to seek the jury questionnaires and Roger Stone, even though Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press agreed with me because the law is clearly established. Other than blue check lawyers who all, by the way, law about, they lie about the law every time I read them. I don't see an honest thing ever from these people. Not a single lawyer will look at the Rittenhouse facts and, and reach a conclusion different from what we would have reached. But, you know, you're going to ruin your life over that. You're going to be a martyr for that. You're going to risk riots over that. You know, good luck. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, actually where the country is going and judges, it's supposed to be their job to be courageous, not the jurors. It's supposed to be the judge's job to have moral courage. That's why in the federal system, they have life tenure. In many state systems, they have eight-year terms so that you can't just get mad at them one year and then vote them out the next year. They're not showing the kind of moral courage that we would expect, especially Rittenhouse, because I remember the story hit that Rittenhouse had absconded from bail. And I thought, God, this is bad. Didn't really make sense to me though. Just I thought, man, this is bad. But you know, he's a teenager, and then it turns out he actually told the police, "Hey, these guys found out where I lived. They're trying to kill me. I'm going to go here." And the prosecutor would refuse to let him update the address. Then the prosecutor goes to the story with this. A, a real judge would have sanctioned the prosecution. The real judge would have said, "Okay, you created this narrative. It's one-sided. It's tainted the jury. Maybe refer them for professional responsibility." sanction on the state bar, but the very least the judge would have said, okay, you're going to get a headline fraud on the court. You lied, but that didn't happen. Judges aren't showing any kind of courage at all. And that should, frankly, that should be terrifying. And by the way, I was talking to some friends. I never thought about this even. It's about, it's about the turn of the millennials to start getting judgeships. Actually, if you look at aging and career development, 35 that's about when, you know, if you're an all-star, you start Alex Kaczynski, for example, 35, youngest federal judge. But that's a little on the younger side, but 35, 36, they're, they're coming of age. It's going to be a mess when this latest batch of lawyers takes on the judicial role. All right. Now, oh, sorry, go ahead, Robert. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, someone asked for a bench trial or someone asked the question bench trial, but we can't get into too much of what we're going to discuss on Sunday, Robert. So. Well, uh, just bench trial. I've been against almost all bench trials. There's very rare that you will get a better bench trial than a, than a jury trial. Even a corrupted jury. Michael Strickland, my client from Oregon, you know, the little guy who just defended himself with a gun against an Antifa-type crowd, and his lawyer thought, oh, the Portland jury pool's so bad, we'll do a bench trial. And no, yeah, those judges are even worse. Uh, they're going to hang you from the get-go, and then it's harder to get reversal on appeal. And so... Uh, I know of almost no examples where a bench trial is better than a jury trial. It's only if the judge clearly communicates that the judge is with you that you would ever want a bench trial. And even then, the other side's not going to want it. So 
in my view, it's almost always problematic. It's I was talking today to an old friend who was actually in one of the Home Alone movies, but now is a public defender in California. And uh, she said that bench trials are always a disaster for criminal defendants. And that's been my experience as well. They're just not, unfortunately, as, as Mike points out, if any of us on defense lawyers had done what the prosecutor in Rittenhouse did, which was use the judicial filings to libel and lie about Kyle Rittenhouse and smear him in the court of public opinion and gaslight a potential jury, we would be sanctioned, maybe disbarred. Uh, maybe we'd get contempt findings. Go back to the Chicago 7 trial. I mean, William Kunstler had like 53 contempt filings just for asserting his client's rights. So, but you almost never see prosecutors face consequences. And it's going to get worse when the millennial generation comes into power because they believe in this nonsense. They believe in the ends justify the means. They believe in you weaponize power for politicized purposes and you punish your adversaries. And we're just beginning to see, I mean, the GQ just did a big story on the Rittenhouse case, and it's fairer than most media stories, but I'll never forget one of the paragraphs, which talks about one of the people that tried to, that did assault and tried to kill Rittenhouse that night, who was the first person who ended up dead when Rittenhouse defended himself, uh, describes him as, oh, he had a tragic past, you know, drugs, et cetera. And at the end of the sentence, it says, and he had been in prison for 14 years for sexually abusing minor children. It's like, that's tragic now? Being a pedophile is being tragic? Serving 14 years for the number of people you assaulted? To me, that's morally horrendous, uh, is, is what happened. But to his credit, he also discloses the person was suicidal, was trying to get people to shoot him during the night, had been trying to kill himself leading up to the event, which is not unusual for some of that. But it gives you a sense of the media mindset. Uh, no, their unwillingness to recognize the truth of their own side and gaslighting the opposing side. Oh, they, they 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 branded Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist and then discreetly revealed that the three victims, victims in, in quotes, were white. Uh, I, I, and when I first heard it, I was like, oh, he, you know, I, I had a different uh, vision of the alleged, you know, the victims or the, the deceased based on the, the media description. Well, here's but, the key change that I've seen, too, is the you uh, up until recently, you probably could today even still is. Every big law firm was proud to defend the 9-11 terrorists. Everyone deserves a lawyer. How many of those MAGA defendants are getting pro bono representation from Quinn Emanuel, from Morrison and Forrester, right from Melvin and Myers, from Skadden Arps, Jones Day? No. And if they, if they did it, there'd be a riot with the younger associates if a partner tried to take that case the associates wouldn't even take them. So 9-11 uh, terrorists can get top flight pro bono representation. People lined up. There were so many lawyers at one point, they were fighting for it. You read the briefs and it would be like, oh, Melody and Meyer, Skadden Arps, Quinn Emanuel, you know, all in the same briefs, right? Everybody wanted a piece of these cases. If you're a MAGA grandma though, or if you're a hairstylist in Beverly Hills and you see a whole crowd walking into a place and you walk in and look around a little bit, Oh, this is interesting. And you walk out. Good luck. Although, fortunately, and maybe this is the only glimmer of hope I have in terms of the future of the law, is the briefings I've read from the federal defenders are good. They're getting so if you're middle class and you got charged in those riots, you're screwed, um, really. Because how are you going to afford you know, a really a lawyer who can really take this case to trial and really fight for your rights hard and not push you to plea. But if you have no money at all and you have a federal defender, they are getting good representation. So that 
is at least it's not much of a glimmer, but it's a little bit of a glimmer that there are still people who believe in the Constitution and the federal defenders aren't going to steamroll any of their clients and they're going to fight like hell for their clients. And that's good to see. Oh, um, absolutely. Bringing up Kevin Rutherford says you'll never get moral courage from someone whose self-worth is more important than justice or backlash. And Kevin, no, I'm not knowing anything about Kevin individually, I, I, he comments a lot, but th that is a lot easier said than done for a lot of people. Because until you've been on the, I mean, I would say until you've been on the receiving end of that, what it is, you might not fully appreciate it. And this is going to be on that, on steroids, on steroids. Uh, this is going back to you know any juror who's going to possibly vote acquittal in um, uh, in the Derek Chauvin trial. It's it's you can't imagine what it's like to have your life totally upended because of this, and and even when it even when it ends in a celebrity trial like in the O.J. Simpson, you know, you you get hounded and you get you you get thrust into a spotlight that you never want. Civic duty is one thing, but uh, you know, destroying your life is is entirely another. The other problem is the modern social media and the rest. There are some jurors who wanted to be on the jury, and they're millennials. That's a disaster. Those are jurors that can't wait to be social media stars by voting. And there's only one way you become a social media star in this case, and that's vote convict, regardless of the facts. And so this is the whole social media world is revolutionizing jury selection in a lot of ways that create many more problems and benefits. The people who vote acquittal are scared of being doxxed. The people who vote conviction are thinking they're going to be social media stars of their own reality TV show. Oprah's going to interview them. It's a crazy world what's happening and how social media is impacting the ability to even select an honest jury. And that, that comment, by the way, would, would have been a block if somebody tweeted that at me. I don't block. And I, I sort of, I, I, I block one or two, but it was overt threats that I just won't deal with. But just show you my threshold. That's how, <laughs> that's why people think, Oh, he, I heard his feelings on this one. No, no, no. That that's my that would meet my threshold for a block. I know I would never do it because I I like I said to Pierce Morgan this morning. You can't walk off stage when you're when you've been bashing uh, Megan Megan Merkel Megan Merkel and then someone bashes you. But uh, but I do appreciate that sometimes the toxicity creates its own that's momentum. But that was that's why that was illustrative. That wasn't bashing anyone. But I would just read that and say this is someone who doesn't have worldliness. <laughs> All every lawyer has seen good people, the best people you could imagine, plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit, settle lawsuits where they were completely in the right, and the other person was just shaking them down and trying to bleed them dry. We've all seen the, the most courageous, morally upstanding people in the world have to make compromises because of a different end. And the idea that if you have three kids, you can barely afford diapers, you're making $40,000 a year. They can't just go get an Airbnb down the street. That that's where, and that's where I draw the line, like moral courage, and I tie it to, to a large degree for wealth. So the only people that I really will berate and bully for being cowards are if you're rich. So if you're rich, oh boohoo, you're gonna have to go, you know, with security, you're gonna have to lay low for a little bit. Guess what? You can hire a former former ranger, Navy SEAL. There has been times I didn't travel without a special forces guy, ex special forces guy next to me. That was just, and I'm not even rich, you know, but that, that's just the idea that that's a hazard of the trade. But most people aren't in a position where they could just say, okay, things are getting a little hot here. I'm going to call up a couple of security guys. You know, we're going to go you stay somewhere else and we're going to kind of lay low. Most people are what less than half the country could raise a thousand dollars in a week. If they had an emergency, that was 
survey taken years ago. So it's probably close to probably 60 to 70% of the United States people live in the U.S. couldn't come up with $1,000 if they had an emergency within a week. We're, that's the jury pool. So we're supposed to expect a jury pool to just say, hey, you know, you might lose everything. Your kids might be homeless, put into foster care. You might get killed, but it's the right thing to do. Get real. Yeah. The um, No, and, and also it, when it gets even one step further, talking about Barnes, you know, weaponizing everything, you go to try to crowd crowdsource or crowdfund and then they shut your crowdfunding thing down. They, you know, you, you can't get money in PayPal. And it's because you rep because you did the wrong thing politically. It's 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 quite it's quite a world where things are all intertwined and you can see the interplay. Well, look at what they've done to Kyle Rittenhouse's ability to defend himself. I mean, normally a poor kid like that comes from a long, poor family uh, that has dealt with a lot of difficulties, a working class, poor family, you know, working 100 hour kind of work weeks. But the reality is that doesn't get you far if you have certain, you know, nursing assistant occupations, for example. And if you have a, it's a one parent uh, financial household, the but normally he would get railroaded, not only between the, pro the power of the prosecutors and police to do whatever they want when they want to. But here they wouldn't even allow crowdfunding to occur on almost every platform, you know, has to keep changing platforms every week or two because they're racing and chasing to uh, blacklist the ability of people to even give him money, of banks to even handle the money for his legal fees, for his security costs, for his investigators. So it uh, shows the mindset. The mindset is, it, it's as what Mike's been warning, warning about, it's a gulag, Stalin-esque mindset and mentality that this new wave of power seekers want to impose. And they just have new technological means that make it easier for them to impose it on a broader scale than Stalin or Hoover could have ever dreamed of. Well, let's, let's, let's end it on this question to you, Mike. Where do you see it going? Uh, is it getting worse or is it getting better? And where do you see yourself going in all of the, in all of the mess? That's a very hard question because there's, they right in war the other side has options too the other side gets an opinion thus far the war has been unilateral the war has been destroying the lives of people viewed as conservative or right wing kicking them off platforms destroying them and if that continues unilaterally then it would end in gulags now a lot of people say well gulag that's extreme no, they're not going to be putting on your train to Siberia, but they'll railroad you in a federal system like they're doing to that meme kid in um, the SDN, or I think this was uh, Eastern District of New York, which is like a sister to the SDNY where, oh, you made a meme. We're mad at you. Five years ago, we're going after you. Remember, everybody can, right? Remember the, the line of the gulag where they asked the guard, how can you have this job? And he said, everyone here has confessed. That's what it would be. That's what they're doing with these cases in D.C. January 6th, the, the, you know, Viva, I don't know if you've ever done a federal criminal case, but there's something here called the Federal Sentencing Guidelines, and it's very mathematically based. What's the charge? How many offenses? Was it a violent offense? What's the loss? Most of the people being prosecuted, you would say first-time offender, nonviolent, felony trespassing, but it might get pled down to misdemeanor trespassing. It won't here, but it'll still be a felony zero to 60 days in federal prison, but they're being kept without bail for longer than they would even be held had they been convicted, even though they're presumed innocent. So why isn't that a gulag, right? Maybe that's a metaphor. Maybe the gulags here are a little bit better, but if you're holding someone in custody for a period of time that will exceed what they would receive having them been convicted, 
you can't tell me that that's due process of law. You can't tell me that's constitutional. You can't tell me that's not a gulag. That's what we're facing. The flip side, and this is a prediction, not an endorsement, because people always try to, they do that to Alex Jones all the time too, where you're like, this is what's coming. This is what's, and they're like, oh, you're trying to make it. I'm trying to do the opposite. The reason that I believe in institutions, and I used to believe in the ACLU, is because if you live in a pluralistic society and you make room for people, those people don't get violent. When you oppress people, you have the Haitian slave rebellion. We always think in terms of, because remember the, the people on the left think they're the good guys. And they would say, well, the Haitian slave rebellion was a good thing. And they would tell you all those things about why it was a good thing. And you're like, well, slave rebellions, I mean, come on, right? Obviously, the broader point though is that you can only oppress people for so long and the people being oppressed in the country are the former military people. They're the people who own the firearms. They're the people who have served their country, lost friends of their country. And I'm sitting over here thinking, this is awful. So my bigger prediction is they will try to gulag more people, they being the left, the establishment. But you're going to have what's called the cartelization of the United States. So what, what I mean by that, and let me know if I'm talking too long and when you need to cut me off. But all that happened with the drug cartels in Mexico was an elite military force said, you know what? We don't like our government anymore. We're going to do drugs or deal drugs. That's all. People don't know this. They think El Chapo was some random criminal like Al Capone. It started off with the uh, Los Zetos, started off elite military forces. So what would happen if an elite military force said, you know what? We don't like Kamala Harris. Are you kidding me? You want us to shoot American citizens for Kamala Harris? You want us to go fight in Syria for Kamala Harris or Joe Biden? Are you people ridiculous? And remember, the people being oppressed are the families of the people who serve the country. The people being oppressed are the friends and family of the elite soldiers. So what would happen if you had a defection of a critical mass of elite military people and they just said, oh, you know, we're going to carve up. Like what if you had, for example, SEALs in San Diego said, you know what, we've just decided that we're going to take this little like sliver off. You know how many conventional forces it would take to put down 100 SEALs? That, that's where the, the dumb people like Swalwell who goes, oh, you just, you know, people could be nuked if they have guns or you could, do you know what a hundred special operations soldiers, how much territory they could take and how many soldiers it would take to retake that, right? Th so that's my big fear is the left is creating the conditions where a critical mass of elite military say, you know what, we're, we're done with this. We've had enough. We're going to carve off this piece of territory. And then you would have what would be called the fourth generation, non-distributed war breaking out all across the country. So you would have people in Colorado or people in Florida or people in Virginia, and you'd have all these little skirmishes breaking out. And as Iraq and Afghanistan showed, the U.S. military conventional forces don't know how to handle a non-distributed war. They don't know how to handle Afghanistan where you have warlords in every different part and keep in mind, the Afghanis, even though they have the home court advantage geographically, these are not great strategic minds who are well-armed. They have old Klashkinovs, whatever stuff Iran will give them now and then. So what would that like be like in the U.S.? You, you think a bunch of the, you know, look at the people in the National Guard right now in D.C. How many of those people would it take to take out like 100 SEALs, realistically? You, you, are you kidding me? They, they couldn't. 
what are they going to do? They would, they would have no idea how to do it. So what would happen if you had a decentralized, unconventional war breakout where you had chieftains all across the country? That's far more likely. That's why people who talk about the U.S. splitting into two, this isn't the blue and the gray. This isn't 1865. It's a completely different mindset. It would be much more like the Mexican cartels. And that's just so universally bad. And the people who are summoning this, it's almost like you, you watch a horror movie and the kids have the Ouija board and you're like, don't summon the demons, man. Don't do it. It really is a case where the left is summoning bad forces. All right. I'm going to bring up a couple of chats here. I'm an ex-special force. I'm poor. I have the moral fortitude. Others can too. Quit giving folks a note. We are Americans and should act like it. I know what Cerno's response might be to this. Um, and then we got uh, written us is going to the gulag. All right, Mike, Robert, nearing two hours. So we're going to wind it up. And that's, I mean, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting uh, call, not a prediction, but a fear for the future because, you, you know, it, People talk about gulags and, and you you envision things that are that are archaic or antiquated concepts, but that are striking nonetheless. But, you know, a Cold War, a civil war in today's day and age would look far different than what it looked like historically. But it is true. Someone else said, uh, you know, millennials getting to the bench now and bringing this activism where what we thought, you know, judicial activists were 20 years ago. It's going to be that again on steroids going forward. So we'll see. Robert, Michael, um, Mike, <laughs> Mike, I don't know if it's actually Mike, but that was phenomenal. Thank you very much. It's getting dark where you are, Mike. The, um, that's right. Time for dinner. That's it. So that's it. I'm in, I haven't eaten dinner yet either, but phenomenal. We'll do this again. We'll see when, if and when you get a response in the, uh, in the Roger Stone request for documents. It could be the next big story, but it happens, you know, three years later. Robert, Sunday night, we're going to be live. Uh, tomorrow, everybody, I'm going to be live with John Carpe, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, who is representing, his firm is representing the Pastor Coates, who was jailed for not signing an undertaking for his release for having violated COVID. So it's going to be interesting. But gentlemen, thank you very much. Stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes right afterwards. Everyone in the chat, it was a lively chat. I will see you in the next one.